visiting, students gone and coming back. We are uh, considering this short letter of Paul to the Thessalonians. We're almost done. We have uh, the first half of 1 Thessalonians 5 before us this morning, and we'll finish, Lord willing, next week. Paul is answering a number of questions that they have regarding the return of the Lord. Having dealt with the dead in Christ in chapter 4, he now turns to the living in chapter 5, and we pick up reading in verse 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, excuse me, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1, down to verse 11. In fact, let me just back up one verse to the last verse of chapter 4. Therefore, comfort one another with these words speaking about how the Lord will return and we will meet him in the air and thus be with the Lord. But, he writes, concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify each other, just as you also are doing. Amen. Well, let us pray together once more. Our Father, we pray that we ourselves would be so comforted and enlightened, instructed by these words that we might be able to give a full comfort to others as well. As you have poured upon us the new light of your incarnate word, we pray that you would shed upon your church the the brightness of this light, the being illuminated by this teaching that so we might walk in the light of your truth, now and forever. Amen. I have a few old personal cards and notes that I have squirreled at various places around my desk. Maybe you have some notes and cards like this, too. They contain words that I, frankly, need to hear from time to time. Words from many of you. Words of comfort. Words of Christian love. Such words are so important because we all, at times, battle despair and have times of self-doubt when we feel like giving up rather than going on. The healing and helping power of a few words can make all the difference at such a time. Certainly, time and time again in the Bible, we are urged to speak comfort, reassurance, um, encouragement, hope to help one another, to strengthen the weak, to comfort the troubled, to come alongside one another, such is the great power of words. In fact, there's even been some medical research 
recently about the power of words in our physical bodies in an article titled words can change your brain researchers andrew meberg uh, newberg rather md and mark waldman state quote if i were to put you into an fmri scanner and take a video of the neural changes happening in your brain and then flash the word no for less than a second you'd see a a sudden release of dozens of stress-producing hormones and neurotransmitters. These chemicals immediately interrupt the normal functioning of your brain, impairing logic, reason, language processing, and communication. In fact, they say, just seeing a list of negative words for a few seconds will make a highly anxious or depressed person feel worse. And the more you ruminate on them, the more you can actually damage key structures that regulate your memory, feelings, and emotions. You'll disrupt your sleep, your appetite, and your ability to experience long-term happiness and satisfaction. Everybody with a cell phone says, uh-huh, right? Uh-huh, yeah, I know what you mean, right? Uh, words have even been shown, they say, to alter the expression of genes. That's pretty scary. All right. So, besides this X-Men thing, what am I saying here? Um, do, do, we, do we need then just a bunch of positive words, right? Well, <laughs> they report, the brain barely responds to positive words and thoughts. Um, they, they, they say that just to break even, it's got to be a three or a five to one ratio of good words to bad, but words definitely have a major impact. Uh, you can, and you definitely should, um, Fill your, your mind with the, uh, the encouragement that it needs. Certainly from the Christian perspective, it can be done and it must be, son, must be done. We all suffer, as I say, from some level of discouragement or anxiety aplenty in this world. And we need to have and use the powerful, joyful, hopeful words, such as those supplied to us here. Comfort one another with these words, he writes at the beginning. Or some of you have encourage one another. That word can have both senses, depending on context. And remember the older meaning of the English word comfort, which has influenced my translation, means to strengthen and to fortify. The point is, if you know the Lord, surely you not only need such strengthening, but you have been given such words to do that. And you are responsible then to encourage and strengthen others in this way. That last verse again, we urge you, brethren, uh, sorry, that you therefore comfort one another and edify one another just as you also are doing. All right. So God means his church to be a community of mutual help, support, and encouragement. So chapter 5, verse 11. So chapter 4, verse 18 reminds us that we have this obligation to each other. We are not to leave it only to professional counselors, although they have their important role to play. But to every member of Christ belongs this supporting, caring, encouraging, comforting mutual ministry. And no doubt we have to do it in quite a variety of ways. Um, companionship, sympathy, generosity, and so forth. Just showing up. Some of you uh, have talked about that. But Paul's emphasis here, as elsewhere, is on these 
Words. Words. Words which I've tried to begin by saying to you are powerful, even at the biological level, are powerful. And Solomon wisely says that he who refreshes another will himself be refreshed. Well, let's turn to this passage and see what words of encouragement we're talking about and how these can help us and help us help others. The context here is the Lord's return. The first Christians, poor and persecuted as they were, were inspired by the anticipation of a new world, of a new hope. Jesus is coming back. Our citizenship is in heaven, Paul writes elsewhere, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, it was to be a great day for them in so many ways. We read last chapter in verse 14 that if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. And God will, he writes at the beginning of the next letter, 2 Thessalonians chapter chapter 1, verse 7, give you who are troubled rest when the Lord is revealed from heaven. This will mean, uh, he continues to say, the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and admired among all those who believe. Paul elsewhere in Titus 2 describes this as the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It will bring a new order of things. It will bring at last God's judgment and justice upon this rebellious world. The prophet Joel had spoken of it. The day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? Again, the prophet Zephaniah declared, The great day of the Lord is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess. And he says, hey, to you who are looking forward to this day, you better consider your ways. It's going to be for you a day of darkness. Well, with such a day coming, these new believers in Thessalonica were excited and they were eager to know how they could best be ready for Christ to return. Maybe we can't know the day or the hour, but could we at least know times and seasons? Paul says no. <laughs> he does give them a better answer instead. But I'd like us to follow the text, and we'll begin with the wrong answer that he uh, pushes aside, and we'll consider the right answer that he gives instead, and then we'll conclude with the particular encouragements that he gives to us all. Okay? First, wrong answer. The wrong answer. Knowing when, my first point to you, the wrong answer, knowing when. Paul writes in verse 2, You yourselves know perfectly well that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief. Given the language throughout, it seems certain, virtually, that Paul had told them what Christ himself had said, and on more than one occasion, Watch, therefore, for you do not know the hour in which the Lord is coming. But know this, if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So there was this theme of uncertainty 
in our Lord's teaching. For all the certainty he gave in so many other areas, here's the theme of uncertainty that comes up again in this passage and always comes up in this context. Anyone, I tell you, who says he could read the signs in the newspaper or says that he has a timetable of Christ's return all figured out, he is deceiving himself and others. A few years ago, some of you might remember Edgar Wisenart published a book called 88 Reasons That Jesus Is Coming in 1988. It was a big seller. And his first reason, his first reason was that Jesus only said we couldn't know the day or the hour. He didn't say the year. (laughs) All right. Well, Paul just begins. You know, as I told you before, times and seasons are off the table. Just don't be deceived. The truth is Paul has no idea when Jesus is coming back. You know, his second letter, Paul says, look, do not be quickly shaken by people that say the day of the Lord is at hand. That day will not come, he says, until some major things happen first. There's going to be a great apostasy. There's going to be the revelation of this man of sin. He knows what's happening. He doesn't know when, but that's another sermon. Paul here stresses the note of uncertainty. Look, we just don't know. As I said to you, the Lord comes as a thief. And he gives two analogies uh, that the Lord himself used, that the the day of the Lord comes as a thief, and second, that destruction comes like labor pains on a pregnant woman. The idea is, of course, a thief doesn't schedule his robberies with his victims, and a pregnant woman knows that labor must come sometime, but doesn't know when. In the first case, no warning. In the second case, there is no escape. At least in those days, the labor is coming, there's, there's no escape. The Lord has not given the time of his return. And don't be worried about when. The best way to prepare for the Lord's return is not to say, well, hmm, when is it? Because you know, there's this sinful tendency to ask for a reason. You see, the vast majority of people in the world believe that there is a God. In fact, they hope one day to be more godly people. Most people are not resolved that they will never repent and turn to the Lord. They just prefer to do it later. Exactly. Okay. Add to this our natural love for sin, our aversion to holiness, and people find it hard to take time to be holy, as the song says. I mean, if it's hard today, maybe it'll be easier tomorrow, they think. But that is just not the case. As Thomas Boston put it, sin is a disease when the longer it lasts... It gathers more strength and is harder to cure. The longer it's in you, the harder it is to cure. It's like a fire, you know? You see a fire, you can put it out with a fire extinguisher, hmm, but maybe you just wait, and, and then the, the burning is too much. Um, he that is not ready to repent today, says Boston, will be less fit tomorrow in general. That's why in the Bible, we, we always have the day of salvation is today. Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Refusing to hear that voice day after day, saying no, 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 no to God, does not soften your heart tomorrow. It hardens it. Um, Harry Ironsides writes of the time that he was a boy and had the privilege of hearing D.L. Moody speak. He was just a little guy. He was able to climb up into the rafters and see um, Moody address some 7,000 people packed into a theater in Chicago. And in the course of his sermon, Moody said, I want everyone in this room who has placed their faith and trust in Christ to stand up. And about 3,000 of them stood up in a 
very large, crowded theater. And he said, okay, now I want all of you who trusted Christ before the age of 15 years to sit down. And half of them sat down. About 1,500 people remained standing. He said, now I want all of you who trusted Christ before 20 years old to sit down. Half of those standing again sat down. About 750 remained. So it went 30 years old, 40 years old. By the time he got to 50 years old, there were only 15 people standing in the whole house. And his dramatic point was that those who keep on saying no to God, who keep on putting it off, usually grow harder of heart and die just as they lived. You think it'll be easier tomorrow, and the Lord's not coming back today, and what's the rush? Well, Thomas Watson said, by delay of repentance, sin strengthens and hardens the heart. There's this story, a pure fable I, I heard about the devil. He summoned some of his minions to consider how best he might keep the world on his side. One demon says, send me, I'll tell them there's no God. The devil replied, they'll never believe you. They know there's a God. Another says, send me, I'll tell them that there is no judgment, heaven or hell. The devil shook his head, that will never do. They know that there is a life after death. But then a third spoke, send me. I'll tell them that there is a God, a heaven and a hell, but that there's no hurry. Ah, says the devil with satisfaction. That is the best plan of all. Go and prosper. Well, most people delay turning to God uh, for such sinful reasons. And probably then for all the things that the Lord didn't, uh, uh, sorry, did tell his disciples, there was one thing he was very pointedly saying, I'm not telling you, which is when I'm returning. People think about later. They think about the thief on the cross they forget about the thief in the night. Hmm. They don't know when they're going to meet the Lord. And especially since we're all a heartbeat away. And it's no good waiting in the darkness. So the Thessalonians had apparently been told before by Paul about this. And they, they, they ask him again. And he says, the Lord comes as a thief at an hour when you do not expect and maybe I'm speaking to somebody today that especially needs to hear this, that you too have all the information that you need of a free salvation, of grace that is greater than all of our sin, of a spirit that can renew us and a father who can receive us with love and lead us safely home. But there's that diabolical whisper that deceives and so often kills. And it just says, tomorrow. And there's the obvious question that this puts to us of the joy that he speaks to in the Thessalonians that says if that joy is worth having, is it not worth having now? And if the Lord is worth loving, is he not worth loving now? And if Christ is worth following, is he not worth following now? And if you do want to be with him forever in heaven, well, would you not rather begin with him now? And if you want to live in holiness and righteousness forever, in perfection would you not at least start those steps today? What do you count more desirable than Christ or his kingdom? Why does the word tomorrow have such power in your life? Well, I can ask a similar question to Christians who have believed. Are you living today in light of the uncertainty of tomorrow? 
not just of the uncertainty of life that we all know, but even the great return of Christ. The new year is a time of resolution for many. You know, when he was a teenager, Jonathan Edwards wrote 70 resolutions that I often print this time of year, and I didn't do that this year. But one of them is this, resolved to live with all my, my, my might while I do live. And Edwards says, we are every day uncertain whether that day will not be the last. Surely life is uncertain, and the Lord will come as a thief in the night and... So it is, point one. We cannot know the times or the seasons. The wrong answer is to say, well, how long do I have? That's not the way to be prepared for the Lord's return. Wrong answer. But you know, there are two two reasons people are surprised when a thief breaks in. We had a thief break in a couple years ago when... When Lieutenant Lewis Chris was living downstairs in the downstairs bedroom, somebody came in the downstairs door, just a few feet away from where Lewis was sleeping, broke in, took his laptop and a couple other things, uh, and left. And Lewis was just sawing logs, snoring away, didn't even wake up. His dad never let him live that down. (laughs) Um, Why why was he robbed? Why was he so surprised uh, in the morning? Well, two reasons. First, a thief comes unexpectedly in the, in, the, in, the, in the hour of the night. And the second important reason is people are asleep at that hour. Now, you can't do anything about the first reason, about the unexpected hour. But you can definitely do something about number two, Paul says, that you can be awake. And the answer is not knowing when he will come, but rather being awake and alert for when he does come. Then we'll be ready and never taken by surprise. So the right solution, he says, always be ready. Always be ready. The right solution given in verses 4 through 8. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should, not, should, should overtake you as a thief. You're all sons of the light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober thief idea. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But we who are of the day, let us be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of hope of salvation. So here's some practical, down-to-earth advice. Do not go to sleep. Important words in general, but especially on Sunday morning. And you have to be alert to grasp this next theological point. The Bible divides history basically into two ages, two overlapping ages, as I'll show you. The prophets of old described the present age, which was evil and dark, and the age to come, the age of the Messiah, which was brightness and life. And the two ages were contrasted in various figurative ways as night and day, darkness and light, and so forth. The present evil age was like a long dark night, and the coming of the Messiah would be like the sun arising, the day breaking, and the world filled with light and glory. Now, the Bible teaches us that these promises have been fulfilled in the coming of Jesus, that he has ushered in the dawn of a new era, a new age. and brought the light of day and the brightness of his rising. The kingdom of God has begun. The powers of the world to come have already broken in and are at work and raised Jesus from the dead and have given us life. But at the same time, 
perhaps unexpectedly, this, this current evil age has not come to an end. I mean, they thought it would be the end of one and the beginning of the other, but it's, it's like this. There's an overlapping age where the present evil age is now ending and the age to come has broken in and begun in Jesus. John describes it as this, the darkness is passing away. The true light is already shining. Or Peter says he's called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. It's the overlapping of ages, the two ages. Or the book of Hebrews says that uh, we've already tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. They've given us new life. So when Christ returns, finally this age of darkness that remains and all that belong to it will be brought to a bitter end in judgment. And those who belong to the brightness of the age to come that has already begun, that these will be fully and finally redeemed and shine forth in glory. So this is Paul's point. Whether we are ready for Christ's return or not, depends on which age we belong to. Whether we are of the darkness, he says, or of the light. Are you of the night or of, are you of the day? Are you asleep or are you awake, he asks. Now, we ourselves, of course, are still a mixture, having put on the new man on the one hand, but we also still partake of the remaining sin in our members upon the earth and all that. And so we are caught in the middle in some ways. But as we prayed earlier, there's a great difference between walking in the darkness and walking in the light. So, so which one are you doing? All right. Paul turns this little Pauline eschatology sermon into a sermon with application. He says, the doctrine, okay, you are not of the darkness, verse 4. You are sons of the light, sons of the day. This is what God has done. Now be what you are, as he so often says. Let's not sleep as others do. Let's watch and be sober. Uh, Let those of us who are of the day put on the breastplate of faith, love, and the helmet of hope. Again, faith, hope, love, that little triplet. Very important for Paul. And those of you who are so surprised uh, uh, to uh, will not be surprised, rather, it is coming because you are going to be equipped and ready every day for battle with this armor on for the Lord's return. So here is his uh, charge to them. Don't be concerned about when. You don't need to know when, and he doesn't know anyway. But the point is, You are sons of the day, sons of the light, sons of the new age. Do not worry about the return of Christ. Just be what you are, and you have no reason to be ashamed. But he concludes now with some words of encouragement in verses 9 through 10. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other. Paul has been talking to us about how to be ready, how we should live. We are children of of the light. We should be children of the light. But now to ground this encouragement, he takes the focus off of us because, frankly, the more that we look at ourselves, we will never have this confidence and encouragement that we need. We need this exhortation. But if we are to be strong and comforted, considering the return of the Lord, our focus needs to be on him and not on ourselves. 
You see what I mean? There's just too much in ourselves to discourage ourselves. So Paul then turns to show us once again the great ground of all of our confidence. First, that God has appointed, or some of you have destined us for salvation. And second, Christ himself has died for us, that we may live. That as much as we are children of the light and we need to walk in the light, that our salvation rests ultimately not on the shifting sands of our holiness or feelings or experiences or performance, which always will be in some measure discouraging, caught between the ages as we are, but on God himself. First, God's election. God has appointed us, or many of you have. God has destined us, not for wrath, but for salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And one scholar notes that this word is regularly used for God's sovereign determination of events in the Bible. So that Jesus could say, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. It's sovereign appointment type language, hence many of you have destined, or as the Bible elsewhere calls it, predestination, although there's not really any other kind of destination than predestination, but that's another story. Many Christians stumble over this because they misunderstand it. The Bible, though, clearly teaches again and again that though we all make real and responsible choices, that we, don't, we shouldn't blame God or anyone else for what we are and what we've chosen, but Paul repeatedly stresses God's choice or election of these Christians. In fact, three times so far, so far. Chapter 1, verse 4, knowing, beloved brethren, your election of God, uh, 2.12, walk worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory, uh, 4.7, God did not call us to uncleanness and holiness, but holiness. And the next letter, he puts it very pointedly, chapter 2, verse 13, but we are bound to give thanks always to you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a short letter. He keeps bringing it up. Why does he emphasize it so often? Is this just some technical theological point that has no practical value? We can leave it to the theologians? Hardly. I mean, look, here, here are these new Christians in Thessalonica. Just, they've just been instructed for a few weeks by Paul before he had to leave. But they need comfort. They need to have some kind of assurance in the face of Christ's return. And the basis of our salvation and the ground of all of our comfort and assurance is not your, how you're doing today. That will, make, that will leave you very unsatisfied. You are up and down. You, day to day, are encouraged and discouraged. The more you look at yourself, the more discouraged you'll get. At least that's the way I feel about you. But God, the point is, has set his love on you before the world, before you've done anything good or bad. He has prepared a glorious future, a destiny for you. Before the foundation of the world, he has then sent his son for you so that ultimately your hope rests not uh, your feeble grip on God, but because he has laid hold of you and appointed you, destined you,
for salvation, calling you in the gospel by his spirit. Okay. And what God started, he will finish. He chose you from the beginning. He called you by his gospel and spirit. That is the first encouragement. If you need confidence in the day of Christ, it has to begin there. And secondly, Christ's cross. It says, God's appointed you to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. That is to say, whether we're alive or dead, it is coming. We're going to be his. Christ, who's coming in power and glory, is the same Christ who died for us so that we might live with him. We don't need to be ashamed or afraid of his coming. He died for us that we might be with him, whether we live or die, whether we are awake or asleep at that moment. What can we fear? I am persuaded, Paul says elsewhere, neither death nor life, nor angels or principalities or powers or things present or things to come, nor height to depth or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So this is the other great ground of our assurance Christ, who comes back to judge the world, is the same Christ who died for you. And you say, well, why did Jesus have to die for me to be saved? I mean, if somebody forgives, somebody wrongs me, I can just forgive him. Why can't God just forgive us? Well, of course, because God is the just judge of all the earth, as he has repeatedly set himself to be, as we've just sang so many songs, right? He cannot be an unjust judge. But at the cross, justice and mercy kiss. You see, the wages of sin is death, and then the free gift of God who suffered that death is life, eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Or God who demonstrates his love for us in this way, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God will not be unjust. He will not be unloving or unmerciful. And therefore, the cross, you see. And so, this is the ground. Yes, despite your sinfulness. In fact, it was sinners that Christ Jesus came into the world to save. That is our our comfort and our confidence in the day of the Lord. Our salvation is not based on works or our merit, ultimately, but on God's gracious choice of us in Christ's great provision for us on the cross. And because we are sons of the day, as he has made us to be, we live that way. That is the firm foundation of our hope. Okay? Not of works, but for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, as he says elsewhere. All right. So this gospel hope. Okay? That's a lot of theology for a sleepy Sunday morning. Um, In conclusion, it was uh, John Stott that pointed out to me, the Thessalonians' problem was, it was very personal and emotional. Um, Some of the members had died. They were grieving the loss of their loved ones, worrying about them, and then about the Lord's coming. The, the, The problem was personal and emotional. The solution was theological. He gives them a solid dose of God's sovereign election, of the substitutionary atonement of Christ, and the second coming. Properly understood, theology is not abstract or impractical, you see. 
this sound or healthy doctrine is the foundation of solving all of our personal and emotional problems. Here are these tender believers. Just three weeks he had to leave them, but he's going to give them some solid food to grow. And maybe you thought at the beginning of this sermon, when I was telling you about the power of words, you're like, yeah, I just need some good words, some happy words in my life. A few more happy words, nice, nice light words. No, 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 much, much, much more than that. Paul concludes, therefore, comfort one another and edify one another just as you were doing. That is to say, you need to understand these words in order that you might be able to comfort one another with them and edify one another through them, just as you were doing, he says. To encourage and build up others with sound doctrine, you need to be learning and applying such things to your own mind and life first. You can't give what you don't have. You need to preach this good news to yourself every day. Go deeper in your own understanding of the truth. And then you'll know God's great comfort and encouragement and be able to give it to others. So, a simple problem, we think, and yet, what an answer. What a strong and certain answer. What a powerful answer to give us encouragement and hope that can quench all of our fears, because perfect love, it's written, casts out fear. And we can think about that great and terrible day of the Lord and think about it in the words of those first Christians who said, Maranatha, which means, Come, O Lord. Is that your joy and confidence? That the one who died for you is coming back and bringing with him all those who sleep in Christ, that, he says, whether we wake or whether we sleep, we will be together with him, comfort one another, and edify one another with these words. Well, I conclude with an old prayer taken from the book, The Valley of Vision. Let's conclude with this prayer. Let's all pray together. O Lord, turn our hearts from vanity, from dissatisfactions, from uncertainties of the present state, to an eternal interest in Christ. Let us remember that life is short and unforeseen and is only an opportunity for usefulness. Give us a holy passion to redeem the time, to awake at every call to charity and piety so that we may diffuse the gospel and show neighborly love to all. Let us live a life of self-distrust but dependence on yourself, your spirit, and Christ's death and cross now.